What Editors Want, the weekly podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview a different editor from the world of publishing to find out what it is they look for in a book. This week, my guest is Emma Herdman. Emma is the editorial director at Hotter Fiction and Hotter's literary imprint, Scepter. We met to discuss both of our backgrounds as booksellers, Emma's time as a fiction buyer for Waterstones, As a former literary agent, I was fascinated to hear what it is that Emma thinks agents look for in an author and what authors should look for in an agent. Emma told me about the importance of the fastest growing area in all of publishing, audiobooks, and her new Audio First initiative. As always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode and enjoy! So, um, so Hodder and Stoughton sits within Hachette, which is a massive umbrella group. Um, and on Hodder, we do lots of commercial, uh, big commercial authors. So we have people like Jodie Pico, Stephen King, John Grisham. Um, I really love that we have Stephen King because we keep getting shown like terrifying film trailers. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we have people like that and um, Jasper Ford, one of my favourites, Graham Norton. Um of course, I go straight to the fiction because uh, that's where I work, and I think so. You work exclusively on exclusive, the fiction, yeah, pretty much exclusively on fiction. And then we have um, a, a small imprint, literary imprint called Scepter, um, which sits within Hodder. And on Scepter, we do twelve to fifteen new books a year, so pretty small and boutique. Um, and that's literary fiction and nonfiction. Right, a smaller team within the bigger. Um, a beast it is. So you're doing a similar job for both, but yeah. you do different types of books. Different kinds of books. So it's quite... Um, I was having this conversation last night, actually, with some people about how you choose when a book comes in. Agents don't often specify which imprint it's for. Right. So you have to sort of decide. And, and obviously the strategy across two different imprints is very different. Hodder fiction is um, is much bigger. Um, and we we have lots and lots of brands brand authors um whereas scepter the strategy is very different because we're small and we're looking for um you know big authors of the future we have siri hustvert and david mitchell andrew miller who i love mm. um and do you ever get a book in that you have to that could go for other lists? yes yeah it's really um I, it's quite a funny thing when you get them in you have to think and which which list it's right for um but my favorite moments are when i send it around for acquisitions and i sort of say oh i think you know it's for this list and then other people come up to me please no please can we do it on this other list i really want to work on it uh so it is a um yeah it's always a, it's a nice position to be in. Yeah, it's a lovely <laughs> position to be in yeah but you didn't start life here i didn't how did you no. first come in professional contact with books so um i had a slightly strange route um (laughs) always good uh i when i was finishing uni i had no idea what i wanted to do english and philosophy classic um and so i applied for the macmillan graduate scheme um 
and just sort of on a whim because I love reading and obviously I was an English and philosophy graduate so I thought I would, would walk that's into the job. a job yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it um, so I applied for that and uh, at the same time I also applied for a master's in text and performance um, at King's College in Rada which was deeply random um, <laughs> but just really I'd done one module in like theatre and memory and I thought it was fascinating um, so I applied for that. Macmillan wrote back and said, actually, we're not going to run the scheme this year. Oh. And I got onto the Masters. So all sorts of publishing totally left my mind. So your decision was made for you. It was made for me. And I and I sort of thought, oh, great, I'm not looking back. And so excited. So I did this um, sort of strange Masters, which was great. Um, it's funny the things that you end up taking through um, that that you don't think that you will like um, dealing with big personalities, mm. uh, working as a group ah. when everybody has strong what opinions. Great skills. <laughs> uh, so it was, but it was, it was good fun. And then I finished that, and I thought, um, like, totally loved academia. So I started doing a PhD um, in uh, like identity and memory and. Um, stuff that when I look back at it I sort of cringe with how pretentious it was anyway I started doing that I was doing that for about six months and then to support myself I had started working at Waterstones because um what better job to do while you are um doing something spending your life in books exactly um so I was doing that and I I worked at my local branch Reading beautiful shop in an old chapel um and I was working there and then I um, saw the light, hated my PhD, quit that, and decided to stay working at Waterstones while I worked out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then I, so I'd been a Christmas temp, and then um, I decided that I'd quite like to move to London while I was working out what to do, and a job at Waterstones Piccadilly came up on the fiction floor. That's like almost exactly what the happened dream. to me. No way! Well, kind of. So I started working as a Christmas temp at the Gower Street branch. Yeah. And the Gower Street branch was right beside UCL. And I was very much working on the kind of front of house, which is AKA the, you know, books, the yeah. hardback new fiction, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the job came up at Waterstones Piccadilly, the big superstore of books. <laughs> and then when I got there, because I'd come from the Garrestry branch, they all thought I'd had this really strong grounding in like academic books, yeah. which I, I can tell you now I do not. <laughs> so I ended up working on what at the time was like the fourth floor. Yes, well, I remember the fourth floor. <laughs> which Always was like reference and philosophy yeah. and had the Russian language section in it. <laughs> and I remember being asked by a very nice Russian lady if I could find a particular book for her. And I was like, how hard can it be? I know what letter this surname starts with. They do not use the same alphabet. <laughs> it was... Um, so that was an experience. Yeah, that's unusual. Um, my experience was not so complicated okay. as that. Um, I was also always in awe of the people on the fourth floor because they just seemed so incredibly intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I felt that as insight. well but <laughs> about the rest of them, yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I loved working at Piccadilly. Wasn't it just amazing? Yeah, it it's was... a very... Because um, I come from... Uh, first of all, chain bookstore, Dimmix, oh. which is a big chain in Australia, and then worked at like a very independent bookstore in Galway in Ireland, which also does loads and loads of secondhand books and like oh, didn't have a point dream. of sale system. So you were absolutely useless for the first six months you worked there. It was like doing the knowledge in for taxi drivers. Yeah. Like you were useless and then you just learned where things were. Um so and then working in Waterstones was a different experience and then Piccadilly was unique because it's this, so unique. It's this cathedral of mm. books and 
I don't know, like all the, the infrastructure that goes into that. Yeah. And also you would think that you were totally fine and then suddenly an amazing celebrity would come in and you'd be totally thrown off. Yeah, God. You'd be like, oh, hello, Ray Fiennes. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, here's your yeah. copy of <laughs> Harry Potter. Um, yeah, I remember... Um, Oh no, I've forgotten his name. Um, Christian Bale. Okay. Who came in with his daughter who was um, wouldn't stop whizzing around the floor on her scooter. It got to the point where I wanted to be like, this is a bookshop, I some respect. I didn't do that. Oh, um, we but, were all thinking it. Yeah, <laughs> all of us were sort of half laughing and half being furious. Um, but yeah, a very unique and strange place to work. Um, anyway, I loved that, um, but I hated shift work. Um, especially, I mean, it... Piccadilly when it was like the first shift was at seven yeah and uh the last shift you know finishing at 10 15 and being on the shop floor by yourself and like a stock take and you could be there till like midnight 1am just horrible Mm. um so I um and at that point uh James Daunt had just taken over and he created all these new buying roles at head office so I thought I'll just go for that and you know I love doing this job and um so I was lucky enough to get one of those jobs so I went up and worked um on the fiction team um as the administrator obviously for new titles which was amazing because I got to know every single publisher because I was booking in the monthly meetings for all of them so I had um an intimate knowledge of all the various sort of imprints and divisions of various publishers so these were publishers essentially coming to pitch Waterstones as a whole to stock their books over the next whatever six or nine months or whatever and how um, because I'm always curious having never done that job at Waterstones Mm. um, what is the relationship are you buying are are the buying team they're buying books for the chain as a whole are you buying for your local store no they're buying for the whole estate right Um, so obviously based on you, you know based on previous sales and things like that a lot of the time and then for debuts it was very different I mean it's all pretty much all changed now but um but at the time yeah we were buying for um for the whole estate it was a really fun job Mm, and um there was lots of uh freedom to try to break out books that you really loved um and it was also amazing having you know sort of quite often knew which booksellers at which shops you thought would like a particular debut so you would send that shop more because you're like oh I'm going to send them a proof because yeah. I know that they'll love it's it it's a bit like the relationship between an agent and an editor yeah yeah exactly exactly um, so that was good fun I moved up then from the administrator to um, buying crime so that was my main genre also bought erotic literature mm. at the time that Fifty Shades took off so, that was very so you're taking credit for that one 100% yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was all me yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, we finally traced it back to the source. My swan song. No, it was great. It was very strange, uh, a very strange time. And then I, um, at that time, I was also doing a, a column in the bookseller on like um, picks for the next few months, which I didn't really do anymore. Um, and then I also took on freelance being the Psychologies Magazine books editor, um, which was really fun. I really, really enjoyed Um and anyway, loved that job. Doing lots of things. Doing lots of things. Literally surrounded by books mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I really loved that job. Um, but then I sort of got to the point where I thought, okay, I've learned everything that I can learn from this. Um, and though I love it, I so I was quite interested in the other side. Um, and a job came up at Curtis Brown Literary Agency. And I thought, oh, I'll just apply for that and see what happens. Um 
And funnily enough, I actually didn't get that job. But then about two weeks later, they called me and said, we've got another job that we think you'd be right for. Do you want to come in and meet the agents that you'd be working with and see what you think? And were you going to be assistant to the agent? Yeah, yeah. So I um, so I was then an assistant um, to two brilliant agents, one who uh, worked in children's predominantly, which was fascinating, just a total other total world. Total different world. It's so Absolutely strange. You think bizarre. you know a lot about publishing and then it's like... And it, again, like everyone's got maids who are writing novels, but you've also got 10 maids yeah. who are writing kids' books. <laughs> and I have to continually <laughs> tell them that actually I don't know anything about it. Yeah. It's. I. I think that I. I never truly understood how different it is. Mm. Um, so that was totally eye-opening. Um, and uh, yeah. So I did that for a few years, and then I, um, started taking on a few of my own clients and Mm. started selling some U.S. projects into the U.K. Um, and then uh, one of my bosses went on maternity leave, and I sort of covered that for her, um, with another agent, um, which was really fun and. Um, such good insight into um, how it all works. Because mm, um, lots of people, you know, um, obviously when you get, I, I get emailed by like master students, for instance, yeah. a lot who want to work in publishing. And it's very easy. And I was in the exact same situation. From the outside, you're like, I want to work in the editorial department yeah. because it feels like the one that is, I don't know, the portrayal of publishing. <laughs> and you know, everyone knows to sign up for jobs at the bookseller. Yeah. And everyone knows that you can email different houses and ask for work experience. But actually, I think people who've done it at literary agents have a particularly insightful experience. A hundred percent. I I just can't recommend interning at um, literary agencies enough. Um, Curtis Brown especially has a really good intern system. It's three months, it's paid, it's like really good you learn so much Mm. um and you're working a little bit with all of the different assistants so you get a total overview i mean they have such a range of books um and like some of the uk's biggest authors um so it was a really like totally invaluable and also i think it's it's helpful because you're working with authors in a totally different way Mm. um so you're I, i would say that you're more of a sounding board and you're more of a um sort of it's lots of aspects of life it's manage managing their career as well Mm. as which I mean we do to some extent as an editor but as an editor you're also looking at specific books so much more making sure that that book will work Mm. whereas um as an agent I think you're you're having much more of an overview of of the career yeah I mean you do always I mean I've been pitched books for instance direct from authors who then either will forget to mention yeah. <laughs> mention it to their agent, for instance, their agent will be like, but you can't do that. You've got another book coming out next year. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you do have to have that long-term view, Exactly, I yeah. yeah, yeah. And I always say this, like, when... Um, I would say it to aspiring authors, when you're signing up with an agent, like, A, it's potentially for life. Like, potentially that person is going to work with you for life and it's, like, a business partnership. Um so it is, you know, you do have to pick carefully. And also that's why I always say when you approach agents, uh, the amount of personal information I know about random people I will never meet from their cover letters is astonishing. Yeah, so what, I mean, from an agent's point of view, yeah. what do you think makes a good author? Or what, yeah. what, what were you looking for? Um, somebody who understood that this is a, essentially a 50-50 split of passion and talent mm-hmm. um and business like it it is mm-hmm. you know i think that 
I think that that sounds quite dry and obviously the agent looks after the business aspect for you, you would hope. But it's useful, I think it's really useful to um, for authors to just have an understanding of the market. I always say, I think I've said it before in other places as well, like don't write for the market, but having an awareness of what's out there it's like going to a party and there being a conversation happening and you don't just walk up to the conversation and start talking. Like you mm. walk up and you listen to what everybody's saying and then you mm. start talking. It, it's it's just having an awareness of like where you want to be. Mm. So and is it, I mean, it's a degree of professionalism. That's much better than <laughs> business. <laughs> no. Yes. Professionalism, because it is a professional relationship. Mm. And it is the best when it develops into friendship as well um and it's obviously you get so invested in somebody as a person um so to ask you the kind of reverse of that question if you're if you're listening to this and you're hoping to find a literary agent what should you be looking for Uh, in an agent Mm. Hmm. i always say um i think well my my number one if you're literally starting from scratch you're like who shall I submit to? I always say go to the biggest bookshop you can find, go around, look at every single book that you think yours is even tangentially similar to, whether it's style, whether it's theme, whether it's content, whatever, and look on the acknowledgements page and find who the agent was, hope that they thanked them. Yes. Find who but you the can agent also, was. You can Google things like yeah. Martin Amos yeah. agent <laughs> yeah. because there is their job exactly. to be yeah. known for Busy. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I always think that that's quite um, that's quite a useful thing. Or if you read a, I, I I always say if you're you know in the middle of writing or thinking about writing, as you're reading books for fun, and if you get to the end and think, oh, I really liked that, and I feel similar to that, just keeping a gentle log rather than having mm. to do it all in one go when you come to submit. Yeah, it's a bit like doing a job application, isn't it? Really it? You is. can really tell when someone's yeah. like had a look at your latest catalogue yeah, and yeah. pick like three yeah. books from it. Whereas if you're picking something from two years ago that maybe yeah. wasn't a massive success but you really the editor yeah. will have really loved that really stands out it really does it, that's exactly yeah exactly it. and I, I think just a an understanding of what you think they can bring and why you think you would work well on their list um mm. i just think that you can't underestimate how much people love being flattered yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, i'm so guilty of that but uh yeah and no, I, I you know it does make a difference and also Okay, so last year, I looked this up for a thing I did recently. Last year, I got about just over 270 submissions. Wow. So that's five submissions a week-ish. And are they all coming from agents? Do you all accept, coming from agents. You only accept submissions from yeah. agents. Yeah. Um, but, so that's that's all, and all of those agents have probably been submitted double that in the last year. You know, so you look at how much this filtering system goes on, like how many layers there are. Um, and you just think how many letters they will be getting that say, dear sir, you know, here's my novel. Mm. I'd love you to represent so it. So if you're getting five a week, they're yeah. getting ten or yeah. ten a week, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that if your letter, if your cover letter is personal and is passionate and stands out, it's it's actually not very hard to stand out. Mm. Um, in my experience, I might, you know, 
background. Sure. But that's in my experience. And that leads us nicely onto the first book we're yeah. going to talk about, which is a book you first agented yeah. before you published, which is <laughs> that author's really found a champion in you, which she is, is so These good. Dividing Walls yes. by Fran Cooper. Um, which is a novel I just love. So Fran um, had submitted uh, on Curtis Brown um, uh, submissions portal um, and she had sent it to me um, I can't remember how she had found me but she I mean she had done her research because I was part of the new writing team so submissions came into the new writing team and either authors could address them to a specific kind of kind of junior agent mm-hmm. or um, or they could just say you know I wasn't sure who to submit to so I've submitted it to this young hungry team of um, like assistants who are all looking to agent um, so Fran had submitted this to me um, and I read it and I absolutely loved it. I just thought it was um, incredibly smart writing with a really strong sense of style. Um, it crossed over, it was, you know, kind of book clubby in that it's a novel set in contemporary Paris over one summer. I mean, this literally could have been last summer. Um and it's set in a, a block of flats. So you have the um, the lives of all the different people who live in these flats. Um, so there's there's a classic book club set up there. You know, everybody gets to talk about who was their favourite person. And, mm. um, but at the same time, it's set against this backdrop, backdrop of um, political Paris and the rise of the far right and the Front National. And it is totally heartbreaking, ends in a horrendous terrorist attack um fran had lived in paris and had been so intensely aware of you know the paris behind closed doors um she had lived in an apartment block and could hear this man snoring every night but never met him the whole yeah, time she God, lived there what a weird level of intimacy yeah really strange and you know she was sort of talking about I, I, her cover letter was exceptional as well and but interestingly that it was targeted or directed to you it wasn't a kind of copy and paste job no not at all she had really done her research um and it was yeah I just totally fell in love with it and so we met up um I gave her some editorial notes generally so that still fell in your job remit yeah yeah definitely we um uh the agents that I worked with were like really keen on doing editorial notes before Mm. you sent out doesn't always happen no but yeah again probably another thing to look for in an agent exactly um yeah and i mean there was one where we even um a couple of books that we hired freelance editors oh, wow. to do full editorial jobs on them when you know sometimes something comes in and you think i can totally see this um Just but it, get it yeah mm. and it kind of needs somebody to spend a week yeah unpicking it and, and it is that, together. i mean it, it is that logic of obviously the more finished something is yeah. or the better something is that the easier as an editor is to commission it exactly um, yeah and so you had was that your first experience doing kind of editorial work at that level um no i had done it before on um clients who weren't mine right um so i felt like i had a sort of you know, a soft landing. Mm. I you tried with those people, and then, but I I always say this about um, when I get submissions here as an editor, the ones where I think, oh yes, like I definitely want to take this on, is where the edits just are so obvious to me. It's so obvious that if you make this small tweak, this will have a huge impact right. on this character's like you know trajectory or. Um, so that's interesting. It's it's mm. not 
finished but you can kind of see it exactly and I and when I get that really fizzy feeling like oh I really want to I really want to talk to the author because I can totally see how to enhance everything that is already there Mm. um and I love and I love that feeling and that's also why sometimes I sort of think I know this book is going to be big I know it will go to an auction but ultimately I'm not going to make it the success that I think it could be because I don't have that innate feeling of understanding of the text and mm. I don't understand what the author's trying to do I can see what they're trying to do but I don't understand how to help them mm. make it the best so that's it interesting be. you can see something as objectively mm. valuable or potentially massively successful but feel like it's not quite right for you yeah and, and I think you know it's a hard balancing act because on the one hand you have to use your business brain and say okay well it ticks all of these boxes um and on the other hand, you have to say, but am I the right editor? Like, you know, mm. if I don't love it, I have to get a whole company passionate about this book. That passion then has to feed out to, you know, the retailers. And then that passion has to feed out to the consumers. And then ultimately you have to make people buy the book. Mm. And if you, I think that you have to have at least some level of professional excitement, even if it's... Um, you know, not um, not totally personal passion. But you do, I yeah. mean, it's a job. You, you have can, to... S- you can get excited because you think something's going to be successful. Exactly, um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how you approach it because you still have slightly your bookseller's background there when you were talking about it being a book club book, for instance. Yeah. Like, I totally find that, like, my years as a bookseller have absolutely informed every decision yeah. I make editorially <laughs> now. Much more so than... I don't know, I did a master's in publishing, but yeah. the book-selling background is really, I don't know, crucial to me. Yeah, same. I mean, I every bit of experience that I've had um, informs every kind of decision. Like, you know, I'll fight for a book to be a fourteen ninety nine rather than a sixteen ninety nine because I know that actually this kind of book can't take that. Yeah. Or, you know, I'll... I'll I don't know. That you need a certain cover on it. Exactly. Yeah, a certain colour for the cover. <laughs> it has to has to be yellow. Um, so all those sorts of things. I just think having... A, I mean, this is a kind of obvious thing, but just being on a shop floor and talking to customers and then coming in and saying, that book with a blue cover. Like, we all joke about it, but then ultimately... When I go into a cover meeting and brief it, sometimes I'm like, oh, I want this one to be, when people go in and go, oh, is that book yeah. with the green cover? And sometimes as a bookseller, you do actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You so regularly do. Like, yeah. I always think that Trouble with Goats and Sheep, not that I was on the shop floor for that one, but, you know, Trouble with Goats and Sheep, um, everybody, it, it was the blue book. Um, and, yeah, my, um, <laughs> it's like my sister can't, can't remember um, normal people she keeps calling it like ordinary persons or, you know. <laughs> Close enough. But it's, like, it's that kind of thing where you think yeah. the, like you those can't titles. ask so much from people you know? yeah yeah mm. you have to make it easy for the for the customer to find it mm. so that was these dividing walls and that was mm. on the hotter list yeah than that was on the hotter so while we're speaking about that let's talk about the other hotter book which yeah. is something coming out next year yes right? next so year 2020 looking way in the future. looking oh <laughs> It's funny how far uh it's end up working. But, yeah, but, it yeah. feels very close. So it's um yeah, I'm really excited about this book. It is a debut novel by um a comedian called Liam Williams. Um uh 
he has been called both the voice of a generation and um, the Philip Larkin of British comedy, wow. which I really like. Because <laughs> I know you're a big fan of Jill. Yes, I love Jill. It's one of my favourite books. Because that obviously was directed yeah. personally yeah. at you. <laughs> yeah. How can we sell the time? Um, but basically, <laughs> I uh, love listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really... I, as very many people have got into audiobooks through listening to podcasts. Yeah. I feel like I've trained my brain to listen. To listen. Um, so, uh, so for quite a long time, I'd wanted to do an audio original project, but I kept trying to work out what that would be and what that would look like. Mm. And what do you mean by audio original? So it will come out in audio first, wow. and then about three months later, the hardback will come out. Interesting. Yeah, it's an experiment. Yeah, and what um, what are you hoping to... What, so what's the goal of that? Um, is it just is it an experiment to see what happens? It's an experiment to see what happens. It's also that I think that we will produce like a cracking audiobook and Liam's going to read it. And I want that to I want people to mm. enjoy the experience and, and be introduced to audio. Quite to often, that. especially with fiction, mm. you I like I'll take something to an editorial meeting and I'll say I hope it will sell in Waterstones. Yeah. I hope it will sell in digital version, or I hope it will sell. In w-. You know that just gives everyone a kind of idea of what your expectations of it. So, and like we know that audio is booming. Yeah. So it's really interesting to say that like because it's still though it's perceived as a kind of secondary market yeah that a book that's doing well you're going to sell some portion of it in audio as well so it's really interesting for you, like you're kind of doing that of saying i really want this to sell an audio to the point of i'm actually going to release it first exactly and because i think i think people will get so much joy from listening to it as an audio book mm. i think it will be i mean it's it's and liam's familiar with doing radio yeah liam's done um so his audience are going to be not exactly shy away from that yeah um, and and he's done a podcast as well, a, a, um, a fiction podcast, uh, which was a kind of audio drama, which is very funny. Um, so uh, so it just it, he felt like a really good person, and I knew that he had been wanting to write a book, um, and I knew that he hadn't written it yet. <laughs> so and then he went he went travelling around Europe. And I had read his blog. Gosh, it sounds quite stalkery now that I think about it. But it was... Um, you were a fan. Uh, I was a fan. I was a fan. Uh, and so I read his blog, um, Travelling Around Europe. Um, brilliant observational humour. Um, but also, you know, a commentary on what it was like travelling around Europe uh, around the time that Brexit was... Um, uh, just starting to kick off. <laughs> <laughs> the long, long run. Um and so it was it was very um it was really interesting and i so i approached him and his agent and i said you know would you be interested in fictionalizing this mm. and so you approached them yeah uh so we it was just something that i thought would be fun we met up we had a chat about what that might look like and um what sort of timelines might do and um and yeah, it was really exciting. So we managed. So you to were kind of there from the outset. Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah. it's a, you know, uh, going back to like the agent example we just talked about, where things are so often the aim is to be as finished and yes. polished as possible. This is quite the reverse. Exactly. Yeah, totally the reverse. That's it. And um, and you know, I mean, I'd read his writing on on the blog, so I knew that he could write, and he's written a play, and he obviously right stand up and he had done this radio 4 documentary and he'd done a bbc3 series which is very funny um called uh plus like 
Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because although radio is like an obviously something you listen to yeah. and not read, but you can, it's obviously written, like yes. it's scripted, um, and you can kind of tell when that's going to translate well to the page. Yeah, and it's it's also, you know, there's something about it being a known quantity. Like, we know he can craft a narrative arc, yeah. and we know that he can write complex characters. Sure. And um, also, you know he's going to bring that air of professionalism yes. to it. You know, he has professionally written and, exactly. pre- and delivered yeah. creative projects. And he's it's it's also been interesting working with somebody who writes who has written for different mediums and mm. the way that he's approached it um, has just been really, um, it's been really fun. I was going to say it's been a privilege. <laughs> uh, but it's, I love finding out how different people work. That's one of my favourite things as an editor is um, the first time that you start working with an author and you um, just sort of gauge how are they going to work, what works best. Do they like to be totally left alone while they're writing or do they like to constantly be mm. asking you questions about your editorial notes? Yeah, and usually it's somewhere between those two. Exactly. Um, I found a great quote from him on the press release for this book, which <laughs> is, thanks to Emma Herdman, who's helped out balance my innate fecklessness. <laughs> <laughs> which I think you need to start pointing on your business cards. <laughs> I, I really will. Um, um, I should point he has not been uh, feckless at all. He has been very, like, as he said, professional, mm. which has been fun. Um, and have you got another book we're going to talk about, which is based on a podcast? I have, yes. So um, this is a uh, a book called Unexplained. This is actually nonfiction. I um, don't really do nonfiction, but I do a little bit of it on mm. Scepter. This, so this is an advanced proof, I'm guessing. <laughs> this is. Um, it, but it has actually already come out, but I just love Lo- the I proof. love it as well. It's so So it, I was going to say it's got nothing written on it, but I can see it's actually <gasps> foiled so when it hits it the light. It is. It's um, very it's unexplained. so clever. Very <laughs> unexplained. We have this amazing um, marketing person uh, called um, Fleur, who now works at HarperCollins, and she just created the most incredible proofs. Um, so this was one of her her specials, um, but this was this was based on a podcast. I went to see him, uh, Richard McLean Smith, at London Podcast Festival a few years ago now, um, and I'd listened to the podcast. But as I was watching him on stage, I suddenly thought this would make an amazing book mm. because what he does is he takes unexplained mysteries um, from all around the world, and he uses them as well. I mean, he spins a great yarn, tells the story of what happened, always deeply unsettling. And then he uses that as a jumping-off point to talk about basically living as a human. So um, in the book, he uses um, an idea of demonic possession to talk about ideas around free will. Mm. Um, So this was very, rather than uh, Liam's example where you were asking him to fictionalise something, this was a very true to the... Very literal, yeah. So I, um, yeah, again... um, and again, I knew that he wanted to do a book, and I approached him about yeah. um, doing that. And he had an agent as well, um, and we we brought them in for a meeting, did a big pitch of like how we saw the book working, um, and and essentially what it is is it's a, a ten chapter book. Um, each chapter just does a little bit more than the podcast does, so the um, it, it just goes into much. Mm. That's quite interesting to hear you say that because at Unbound we publish lots of people who for one reason or another have built up an audience for the work and um, occasionally we try to do um, books with people who might have like huge social media but if the book idea 
if you can't justify to the audience why it's being presented in the book, it yes, doesn't work. Exactly. So if it is scripts of my videos or if it is a dressed up my collected tweets, yeah. it completely <laughs> falls flat. Yes. And people see straight through that. Exactly. You absolutely have to give you have to first explain to them why it's a book, why yeah. it's not just more podcasts. Yeah. Um and why it's more. Like what what's why are they paying for something that they can get for free? Yeah. Like, that's a really good point. And why am I paying whatever it is, twelve ninety nine? Yeah. And sometimes, I think people will, uh, they're predisposed to wanting it, but you do still have to make it really good. Exactly. And that, that, that was a real, I mean, I wouldn't say a learning curve because we knew that that would happen, but it was um, an interesting exercise in making that really clear. Mm. And again, we did an amazing audiobook for this where, um, you know, the added element was that we got a cast of actors in to do little um, kind of vignettes like throughout, wow. so bits of the dialogue. Um, and it was brilliant, and Richard read the audiobook, and it, it just, it offered something slightly different. Um, it was almost like a sort of director's cut of uh, what a normal podcast would be, and it was, you know... Do you guys publish the audiobooks or create the audiobooks yourself, or do you do them with someone like Audible? Or how does that? We work? generally do them. So we actually have a um, an editorial director who looks after audio, and he has a team who work with him, um, and they're amazing. So they we make them ourselves. Wow. Um, we, uh, I mean, we have studios and producers who we work with, but we publish them. Um, and I mean, I've been to some great. There's there's something so magical about going to a recording studio with an author and sitting down with them and then hearing their books being read mm. aloud. I went with Frank Cooper for her second book, and I it, it's a very gothic contemporary gothic novel. Her second book it's um, uh, called The Two Houses, and we were listening to this woman reading from it. It was on the last day, and. Both of us just got goosebumps. Uh, it was such an amazing experience listening yeah, it must to it. Be also, I mean, um, I don't mean this in a bad way, but we are to some degree dulled by books because we work with them yes. every day. So yeah. that kind of uh, novelty of working in the, you know, working in a different medium is really exciting. Exactly. Um, like when you see a book you've worked on, maybe appear on the screen. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's yeah. really, uh, it, it's a great sense of validation as well. It really is, and our, our, they are, um, so our team find. You know, obviously they work with lots of people, but um, I published an Irish novel recently called When All Is Said, and we they were looking for ages for the right person to read it because the narrator is an 83-year-old Irish farmer. Mm. Um, and they found, you know, they approached loads of different people. There's not a lot of 83-year-old Irish farmers no. who are doing part-time <laughs> voice actor work. So this um, is a book you published with your scepter hat on. Yes, so yes. On your more kind of literary imprint. Exactly. And it's When All Is Said by Anne Griffin. Yeah, it is um, it is a lovely novel. It's um, this old old man, Morris Hannigan, who, um, as Anne says, sits to a bar in the local hotel. And uh, over the course of one evening, he raises five toasts to the five people who have meant the most to him throughout his life. Um, and through these toasts, you come to understand why he's sitting at that bar, what has happened um, mm. in that hotel before, and um, what's going to happen at the end of the night, Lovely. and why this night is so special. Um, and yeah, it's amazing. It's very moving. Um, I think I think it was Graham Norton was saying that like, you start crying page yeah, five or something. Yeah, I've got a few quotes about it <laughs> yeah. here. I mean, 
any novel that can attract this range of people saying it's good so everyone from Graham Norton to John Banville yeah. is, <laughs> is about as wide a spectrum <laughs> and Celia Hearn in the middle yeah. and Kid the Wall brilliant um, so that's I mean it must be great I don't know again validation to, yeah. to have people like that saying that something you've produced is good <laughs> it's amazing it's so and it, it the the one of the like as I'm sure you'll agree one of the great privileges of this job is when you have good news and you can tell an author you know I remember in Melinka when Donal Ryan gave a quote for this book and she it was such a wonderful thing to be able to tell her mm. and she was over the moon like mm. absolutely made up and you know telling her that she was number one in Ireland she was number one for five weeks um, and she's been in the charts ever since um, it's just there's something really uh, lovely about that. Yeah, it's something, you know, sometimes good. when people ask um, what value does a publisher add, yeah. I mean, of course that can't happen for every single book, but it, when you can do it, that's that's it, that's the answer. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, and, and I, we were um, uh, actually in a bookshop yesterday as a team and we were looking at the tables and I was saying it's, slightly terrifying when you as a publisher look at that table of books and you think I know how many hours have gone in to making just this one table yeah, like yeah. how many hours you're talking about a, a probably two years per yeah, book exactly and how many people have worked on these yeah. books and how many decisions have been made about everything from you know the literal words to like what kind of stock they'll use the paper to the whether there's going to be spot UV or sure, like what size or, is it exactly. what price is it everything is I mean it's a, just you and all of that for one person's mm, but it must brain. feed back into like when you're you know when you were saying a minute ago about uh, a book whether or not it's right for you because there's never a right or wrong answer in no. publishing like when you're presenting to an author you're kind of saying this is how I see it if you agree, you should pub- go with me. Exactly. But if you don't agree, you, <laughs> should, you, you shouldn't, because I'm yeah. going to make it something that. This you is really are. interesting. I had um, I've uh, another novel that's coming out next year in the summer next year um, that I am totally obsessed with called The Octopus by um, this author called Tess Little, and I loved the book. I read it literally in an evening, which is quite rare to be, you know perfect storm has happened for that to happen yeah. I, I really loved it um, but to me it sat between um, a sort of literary mystery and a more commercial contemporary um, novel and so I asked them if they would be up for coming in having a chat about where I saw it mm, and so I mean, you, could, you could see it on either of your lists yeah exactly and I um, in the end I I think I suggested like three main quite major edits including changing the ending but I just had this really clear vision for it and I was so excited about the vision that I had for it um, but obviously there's no point taking the book on if she hadn't wanted it and yeah. you know I kept saying you, this is so true you only get one chance to be a debut author mm. really um, and it's not I mean publishing at all costs should not be any author's goal exactly exactly so um but luckily, when we met, we um, totally got on, which is crucial. Crucial, <laughs> um, and and we 
I was going to say I convinced her of my vision. I did. That's not true at all. Um, she she understood my vision, mm-hmm. and actually, once we had talked about it, and she made suggestions as well. It's that lovely like collaboration where you think, oh great, we can definitely work together because you've made me think of a different idea, and then something that I've said has made you think of yeah, something else. And I quite often have a go. I don't understand why that happened, and then they'll say, oh. It happened because this, and be like, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah. the, the outcome of that is you need to get that in there. I know exactly. you know it, but I need it to You kind out. of have to play devil's advocate. Mm. Yeah, but why does that happen? Yeah, why does that happen? You have to sometimes behave a little bit stupidly. Yes. You, know, you have yeah. to be like, I mean, not everything, of course, has to be obvious, but it has to be sure. in there. It has to be solvable. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that that's coming out this summer next year. Yes. So at any one point, how far ahead are you working? Is that a terrifying question? It's, <laughs> it's quite a scary question. Um, so so I've just done um, the first round of edits on that, and that's out um, the end of May next year. 2020. Um, yeah. Actually, I've just done the first round of edits on a couple of books that are coming out in May and then July. So I'm kind of working on... I guess I'm like you're kind of working up to a year ahead, yeah. but I don't tend to publish that much in the second half of the year right. of original fiction because... Um, the sort of books that I publish don't really take the summer to the yeah. um, autumn winter market. Sure, so I mean tip, the the cliche almost is that you know, the big books come out at Christmas are the yeah. cookbooks and the celebrity biographies and stuff, and that yeah. spring especially is a good time for new fiction. It is, and 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 summer as well. You know, people looking mm. for something new mm. to take away, and there are so many more opportunities to get reviews in the summer roundup. Right. So there's, you know, technically. I don't know. It just it but you're very much it. that's at the forefront of your mind. Yes. And yeah. wh- how many books do you do a year? Uh, roughly. Roughly. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, how many books am I meant to do a year? And how many books do I actually do? Uh, so I would say, so for example, next year, original fiction, I've got about seven books. Okay. And yeah. are you doing? I just was interested when we've talk, been talking a little bit about audio, and you mentioned trying to find mm. that farmer slash voice yeah. for Anne's novel. <laughs> uh, do you do an audio book of everything, um, or is it going that way? Pretty much, yeah. We pretty much do. Um, it really depends. I mean, there are some that just. I mean, obviously, they're very expensive to produce. Yeah, um, but that's why I was interested that you do it in house. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, but we, by doing it in house. Often, when we do it in house, we, um, you know, we, I mean, we have this dedicated team who are amazing, and it's literally what they do every day, uh, and they know the market so well, and they pick the most interesting um, readers, and you know, they mm. always send. So they're it. more than producing it. One hundred percent, they are like like the publishing team. They're yeah. also publicizing it and making sure it's in the right place on Amazon or yeah. whatever. Yeah, they do. They're, I mean, they're literally publishing a, a product in the same way that we do, um, and they, you know, they pick they pick readers. They pick a selection of readers. Sometimes they'll send it across to you know. They make sure that the author's happy with the reader. They. Um, I mean, they're just totally, they're, they're experts at what they do. And so, you know, occasionally they'll say, there's no point doing an audiobook of this because, you know, it will sell 50 copies. Right. And, um, so again, it's with your commercial hat on. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. But but it is, I mean, most of the time, most of my books, I would say, we do Great. audio. And the final question I'm going to ask yeah. you is, you've been behaving as a bookseller, yeah. as an agent, <laughs> and as a publisher. I'm going to ask you to be a reader for a second mm-hmm. and just tell you, is there a book you've read of recent times that you've really loved? So, okay, I 
just read last week. Um, oh, I feel a bit lame saying this because I feel like everybody will say it. Can I say two? You can okay, say two. Yeah. Uh, so last week I read Daisy Jones and the Six, um, which I had seen everywhere. I knew I wanted to read it. And that anticipation. Yeah, yeah, the anticipation. I hate that. That's one of the things I hate about working in publishing is that you have such high hopes. And um, and I got it and I was so worried. And I read the first page and I was like, okay, it's kind of unusual. I quite Phew. like the structure. One of my favorite things is books with unusual structures. I okay. just cannot get enough of them. Which I realized as well, if you look back at most of the books I've published, all of them have this quite distinct structure. Anyway, so um, oh, I just loved it. I absolutely raced through it. It wasn't quite what I expected in that it wasn't. It, it was quite a linear narrative, but um, but I I kind of enjoyed it all the more for that unusual structure, linear narrative. Great, it's <laughs> so good. Way. Put in your cover. Yeah, <laughs> but then uh, the other one which I bought because I just bought a um, I went to this amazing bookshop in um, uh, Carlisle for an event. It is a bookshop that is has some first hand stuff, but also second hand stuff. It has thirty five rooms. It's incredible. You could literally get lost for a whole day in there. Um, it's called, oh, hang on. I think it's called Books and Ale. Their cafe is called Cakes and Ale. Anyway, it's amazing. Uh, but I went there, obviously couldn't resist buying something. And I bought this beautiful folio edition of The Chrysalids by John Wyndham, mm-hmm. which is one of my favourite books. So I've just been like so enjoying Back rereading that. Oh, it's such a good book. I love John Wyndham. Join me next week when my guest will be Kit Kalis, co-founder of Influx Press. Kit will be telling us about starting a press from scratch, publishing books from Hackney to the Western Sahara, and some of his amazing lists like Whole Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime, and one of my favourite collections of stories, Ely Williams' A Trip. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter or email at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.